Welcome to episode number 225. In today's episode, I'm going to be giving you my top takeaways from our vegetable garden from 2019. Things that I plan on doing more of, things that I'm going to change, things I'm not going to do and things you might want to be considering as well as you begin looking at planning out your garden for the year 2020. Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, best-selling author of three books, including my brand new book, The Family Garden Plan, Grow a Year's Worth of Healthy and Sustainable Food for Your Family, that is releasing this January. I'm also the founder of the Pioneering Today Academy, our membership site, and melissaknorris.com with the Pioneering Today blog. And this is your spot where we use home, and you have found the spot for all things homegrown and homemade, where we use modern homesteading to raise, preserve, and cook our own organic food, no matter where you live, taking the absolute best of the pioneer times, and incorporating it into our modern lives. I think it's always important in all things that we do, gardening, homesteading, everything, that we take time to reflect and to look back and analyze what went right, so absolutely what we wanna do more of, what didn't go right, so we know what to avoid, and then also some areas that we could just make maybe some slight tweaks or changes that would make it even better. Every year in our garden, I like to always add in one new crop or new variety, something new every year. I just think it's always fun. It helps me try out some different things. Some things are favorites, some things are not. And I decide not to do them a good again. But when you've been gardening for 20 plus years on your own, you want to make sure that you are trying and bringing in new things. And the reason I'm leading with that is because this past year, I tried out a couple of new things. I tried out a new type of spinach. So it was amaranth and it was a Chinese spinach that was supposed to do better through the summer months when it gets really hot. Spinach has a tendency to bolt. So once you hit those hot months of summer, even here in the Pacific Northwest, your spinach will go to flower, go to seed, it will bolt, and you just don't get to harvest it very long. So this was supposed to be a variety, and it was gorgeous. What I probably will do, because I still have some seeds left, is grow it in some of my flower containers because it's a beautiful, I think I've got some photos that I'll put in today's show notes so that you guys can check it out because it really was just gorgeous. A lime green with this deep kind of a burgundy red purplish color, speckled and striped, like really, really a beautiful, beautiful leaf. But I just found we didn't eat it a whole lot. I didn't put it to use. I would pick it every now and then and and put it in a salad or if we're doing a stir fry or something. But We really just didn't love it that much. And I found even though it didn't bolt as it went into the hotter months of summer, at least for me, it tended to still get a little bit of a bitter, a bitter, strong taste. And so then I just wasn't using it. So it wasn't bolting, but it just wasn't our favorite. The chickens loved it because I would give them the extra that we weren't eating. But I don't think that I would grow it again as a main food crop. And it wasn't something. And I know that with the greens, we don't usually end up preserving our greens You're much more limited in the way that you can preserve greens. 
And the other thing that I grew that we just didn't use a lot of was Swiss chard. It actually did very well for me. I started it, I did an early crop of it and then a later crop. And I still have some actually out in the garden. So at the time of this recording, it's in December. I still have some Swiss chard that's growing out there. But just in this season in, in my life and the way that we're cooking, I'm not putting it to use. We're just not using it that much. So this is one of the foundational things that I teach and share when I'm sharing how to grow. And it's one of the first things that I go over in the new book in the family garden plan. And it's to grow more of what you eat on a regular basis. Now, like I said, I, I do like to put in some new things because you never know. Sometimes you find something that you love and you're going to eat a lot more of it than you did before. But as I was going over what we preserved and what I'm using and what we even used during fresh during the summer, we just weren't doing a ton of those greens. It was I can't say it was wasted space or it was a wasted crop because we did eat some of it. And like I said, what we don't eat, I will use in composting or to the livestock. The chickens love it. I can feed it to the cattle. And it's a learning experience. So I know going forward in this coming year, I'm not going to be planting those as much. The other thing that I learned from this year's garden is to use more season extenders, but at the end of the season and less in the beginning. So let me kind of explain that and why I decided that and kind of the scientific experiment, experiment, I guess you could say that I did. So within writing the family garden plan and turning it into my publisher, this book has a lot of beautiful color photographs in it. And they came up to my homestead. If you listen to a couple episodes back, you heard about that. And they came to the homestead. But the way that it worked for the timeline, you have a lot of timelines when a book is being published on when certain things have to be done and turned in in order to meet the printing deadline and shipping deadlines and the slot that the bookstores have said they're going to have it, etc. And we had to do the photos the end of May, beginning of June and pushing it to the beginning of June in order for the book to release in January, we were actually really pushing it with this timeline. But with my growing season, most of my warm weather crops are not even getting planted until if we're a lucky warm year, mid-May, a lot of times we're actually planting Memorial weekend. So the very end of May and they wanted to come up and take photos of the garden. You can see where that can pose a little bit of a problem if you want to have a lot to to take photographs of, of actual produce and plants growing. So I did way more of cold frames and different things so that I could start crops earlier than I ever have before so that they would actually be of a size that we could photograph and some would hopefully be producing and some wouldn't in order to meet this deadline. Now, for those of you in extremely northern climates, this is nothing new to you. For you, for you to be able to grow anything, a, a lot of you have to do this. But for me, normally within that 150 day warm weather growing season that we have mid-May through about mid-September, the only thing I have to do this with is usually my peppers and my tomatoes. The rest of the crops I'm okay with direct sowing outside. So I got to experiment with a lot of different season extenders or cold weather frames in order to get things started. We did a, a ton of different things, which was really fun. And I geeked out and I took my little infrared thermometer out there and I would measure the inside temperature of the different frames in the coldest part of the morning before the sun would come up and the outside and really get to document. And that was actually really fun to see how much protection, what things were getting and where I could push things temperature wise and growing wise. 
And that was cool. And I was able to get a lot of things to sprout way earlier by even direct sowing outdoors than I ever had before. One of the case in point was cucumbers and winter squash. And so summer squash too, with, you know, with your cucumbers are in there with the summer squash, but those typically the ground needs to be about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, the actual soil temp. It has to be warm. They're not going to sprout. They're not going to grow and they don't tolerate any frost or extremely cold weather. So by using these, I was able to direct sow and get my seeds to start growing. It was the end of April. So that's like four weeks earlier than I normally would be able to. And they were growing, which was amazing. I was so excited. I'm like, woohoo, because I'd never done that with those crops before. But here's the interesting thing. I did that with about half of the amount that I would plant. So for me, uh, this past year, I didn't eat as much cucumbers as I normally do because I still had quite a bit excess of pickles and different preserves on the pantry shelf. And I just knew we weren't going to go through them. So I only put in six cucumber plants. So I tested this and I did it early, three cucumber plants. And then the rest I planted when I normally would, which would be the end of May. Same thing with my winter squash. A half of them, I use these techniques and put them in early and the rest I just did as we normally would. And here's the funny thing. Because the outside temperatures were still cooler during those early four weeks, even though they sprouted and they were not killed by those frosts, they didn't grow super fast just because it was chillier out and the colder it is out on warm weather crops, the slower their growth rate is. So I ended up getting actual blossoms and harvestable crops at the same time. I mean, maybe four or five days earlier, not a whole lot earlier, really, in the scope of the garden off of the ones that I had used the cold frames of and it started four weeks earlier than the ones that just I put directly in the ground when I normally would. So I really didn't gain a whole lot, very little. So I learned that I don't for the work amount of work of moving the cold frames on and off on hot days and putting them all and setting them up, et cetera. It really wasn't worth the extra effort for me in the beginning of the season in the early spring, because my results ended up being the same pretty much harvest time and amount of harvest that I got. But here's where it got interesting. The end of the season, so in the fall and the winter months by using cold frames, I extended the long amount of time and the length of time I could harvest and the amount of crops I was getting way, 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 way farther because the plant was already established. So for me, I'm going to plan on using more season extenders in the fall and doing cold frames for fall and winter and not worrying about it in the early part for the spring crops. So that was actually a pretty big thing for me because I'm still able to right now, I am still harvesting beets. And normally for us, beet crops don't last in the ground. Once we start to get hard freezes, um, they will rot and thaw. Or if they're not big enough, they just stop growing. They go dormant. But I'm still getting beets and it's December, you guys, out of the ground. And normally I am done in October with beets. I can't, they just stop growing for me if they're not of size. So I'm pretty excited about this and plan on doing that more. So that was a a big takeaway for me and a great one. Now this kind of segues right into the fall crops. But another thing that I noticed this year is I actually need to start my fall crops a week or two earlier in the summertime. 
So normally I start the majority of the crops that you want to be harvesting through the fall and the winter months. And this again is going to depend on what your climate is and especially what your first average frost date when you normally get your first frost in the fall it's going to depend on when you plant and that's a, another big thing that i go over in the family garden plan in the book and, and walk you through um, when to plant all of these spring crops summer crops fall winter crops etc based on where you live but for me i'm in a gardening zone seven kind of mimic a six but we're technically a seven and I can get my first frost anywhere from mid-September, if we're lucky, not till the 1st of October. So there's always leeway in there as well. So document that. Another tip. <laughs> Extra tip. Document each year when you get your frost because you'll start to begin to get a really good pattern and see that. But it does vary. So I planted the majority of the crops that I wanted to be harvesting in the fall and the winter. I put them in, it was like the first and second week of August. And that worked really well for the majority of my brassicas. So that worked great for the cabbage. It worked very well for the bok choy. Um, worked well for the broccoli. But the broccoli and especially the cauliflower, some of them we got too cold before they had really been able to form much of a head. And then we got those hard frosts and I didn't have enough season extenders or frost fabric to protect all of the cauliflower and all of the broccoli. And so next year I would, I'm gonna put them in about a week or two weeks earlier because I think then that they'll be of large enough size before we get those really heavy killing frosts um, that I'll be able to easily extend them and get a little bit larger harvest off of those plants. Some of them, the really small ones, they didn't actually even really form much of a head. I mean, I had like one stalk of broccoli on there, but the ones that were more mature, I got great stalks of broccoli and kind of the same thing with the cauliflower. The cauliflower took a little bit longer too. So I'm gonna try putting them in just a couple of weeks earlier and seeing if that gets me a larger harvest. And it'll depend a little bit on what my summer weather is like this coming summer, but that's my game plan for 2020. My next takeaway was this has to do with the weeds, which weeding, much as I love gardening, and I actually find weeding therapeutic to a degree, it's not my favorite thing to do, and it can become overwhelming, and it can easily kind of take over really quick, and then you're like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get caught up on this? And sometimes, I'm going to be real honest with you guys, by the end of the growing season, like by the end of summer, like by the time we're hitting August and the majority of my plants especially like the summer warm weather crops. I'm getting all the produce on them. They're pretty much done. I don't really care about the weeds because they're not competing with the growth of the plants anymore because they're done. Now where my fall crops are a little different story. Sometimes I just kind of let the weeds do their thing and I'm like, I do not even care at this point of the year. But this year we did more mulching than we have done in previous years. And I'm still testing on my garden, on the annual vegetable garden, Half of it I did with the wood chips and half of it without. And I did soil tests before I put the wood chips down. So I had something to measure by and I'll be soil testing again this spring. Um, and I'm still I'm not sure yet the results on if I am going to mulch my entire garden with wood chips. It's still out. I haven't decided yet. I'm going to wait and, and see this through a full year, kind of see what the soil tests show and what I think after a, one more summer of growing in it before I commit to doing the entire garden. 
making sure I like I like it. But we, so we did wood chips on half of the vegetable garden, but I also mulched more in my perennial beds than I really ever have before. Um, I used more straw on even the tomatoes and the peppers. So I did more mulching overall than I think I've ever done in any other gardening year. And there was a couple of things. One, before I put the mulch down in these various beds is I weeded very well. So I pulled up the weeds already that, that were there, made sure I disrupted the top surface of the soil with a rake if anything was starting to sprout. So we were destroying those little roots that were coming in. And then we mulched. And then because I had this nice clean surface in all of these beds, weeds did come up. Mulch does not stop weeds altogether, but it does definitely minimize them and it does some other great things for the soil. So when they came up, I just kind of dedicated, I would weed, sometimes it was only 10 minutes a day. Some days was maybe a little bit longer and I'm talking like all of the beds. So the greenhouse, the annual vegetable garden, my perennial row, rows of um, asparagus, the blueberries, the raspberries, the elderberries, my flower beds, my herb beds, like all the beds. So this is a lot. So I would rotate and I would just kind of do weeding, like, like I said, 10 minutes sometimes, maybe 20 minutes sometime if I had more time. But I tried to make sure at least five days a week that I was doing rotating through what we were weeding. And you guys, it made such a difference. Just keeping up on the weeds like that, one, it made it very manageable for me to do. But second, because I was staying on top of it, I didn't have as many weeds that were going to seed and then spreading more or sending out their runners, depending on the type of weed and how it spreads. And then I made sure this fall that I did the same thing, like right before we finally got our killing frost or at our killing frost time, I went out and did another quick over and pulled up any weeds that were starting to, you know, take take out over or get in or get established. And so now they're all everything's in dormancy. And so that means like when it hits this spring, because I stayed on top of it, I'm going to have a lot less weeding to do overall. And so hopefully I will see this reflected year after year after year and always have less weeding to do. But I definitely am going to continue with this method because it made life so much easier for me. Um, and just kept everything just a lot healthier because the more weeds you have, depending on the weeds, obviously they are going to take water and nutrition away from the plants that you do want. And they can choke out different things. Now, some things I don't really consider a weed that other people do, which is a whole nother episode. <laughs> In fact, I will link to one of the episodes that we have, which is for edible and medicinal weeds that you have growing in your backyard that I used to really make sure I was taking out. And now not so much because I know that there's things that I can use. I don't want them necessarily everywhere, but I don't mind if they're growing in certain spots. So I'll link to that in today's blog post that goes with today's show notes at the website, which will be melissaknorris.com forward slash 225, the number 225 because this is episode number 225. Um, but specifically, the episode I'm referring to on the edible and medicinal weeds is episode number 142. If you want to listen to that after you're done with this one. Okay, my next takeaway from our garden is I need to prune my squash plants. So this past year, we actually were a little bit wetter and cooler than in average summer in the Pacific Northwest, which was really nice. Because the previous like three or four years, we had had record droughts each year. We were breaking our heat record and our drought record from the previous year. And I'm talking like in recorded weather history in our area. 
So it was kind of a nice reprieve to have not nearly the fire danger, not to have the smoke from fires. We'd had a lot of fires the years previous and et cetera. However, (laughs) I kind of forgot in those four years, and boy, was I reminded this past year that when we are cooler and wetter and more damp, that that means we have a lot more disease that likes to set in and breed and specifically downy and powdery mildew likes to come in. Now, I already prune for health and so that I have a larger harvest. Of course, my fruit trees and berry bushes, but my tomato plants. But I don't normally end up pruning my squash plants because I normally don't have a ton of disease or issues with them. But this year, they were hit and they got hit hard with that powdery and downy mildew. And there's a definite, and I did spray them. There's very natural and organic sprays that you can use. You can use milk, actually, or whey, and that will help. You can use copper, which is an organic fungicide option. Um, There's lots of different things that you can use organically to treat them, and I did. But honestly, prevention is the best medicine and is really the best thing that you can do. So this year, I am going to prune my squash in hopes that I can stop or keep it from coming back or spreading if it does. Because what I noticed, you've probably noticed this too. If you've grown squash before, especially your your winter squash that has the really the larger leaves, like your pumpkins and your butternut and your spaghetti squash and acorn squash, even um, sometimes in in zucchini, I don't usually notice it as much with cucumber. But the first leaves that sprout, so the first big leaves that form at the base of the plant before it begins to totally vine out, your oldest, most mature leaves, those ones for me tend to be where I first notice the signs of powdery and or downy mildew, or sometimes I think feel like they have both at the same time, but that's where I really first start to notice it being exhibited in the beginning. So as the plant, and you can't, of course, with pruning, you can only prune so much. You can't prune everything off the plant or you're going to kill it. It does need a certain amount of leaves. But as the plant begins to vine out, which does mean that it usually gets more crowded as things vine out and get bigger, that I'm going to prune those oldest leaves, especially from the center where they seem to be more congregated and it's more heavy, to prune some of those out this summer in hopes that it will help with the airflow to keep any of those from happening. Now, if we have a really dry and droughty summer, I really won't need to deal with it. But if we have a summer like this previous one that was pretty wet and humid and kind of cold, then I'm going to be doing that. So pruning the squash was one of my big takeaways. And If you're wanting more ways and tips and tricks to help treat or prevent, which, like I said, is the best, prevent diseases in the garden or to deal with pests organically and naturally, then you definitely are going to want to check out and grab your copy of the Family Garden Plan because I have an entire chart with research-based evidence and on the different ways and based on the pests and the disease, on the natural ways that you can use inorganic methods to treat that disease and then help prevent it from coming back. Okay, my next takeaway from the garden this past year was I want more flowers. I, it's only been, I think I'm going on my third or fourth year now, that I have really incorporated a lot of flowers in around our homestead one and then also in the vegetable garden so in the vegetable garden both i use them for some is for companion planting 
Some I use for my medicinal uses, especially my calendula. I grow that because it's one of my favorite medicinal flowers to use in my topical salves and soaps and different things that I'm making. And then also as pollinators. So we know that we're having a decline in our honeybees and we know that our garden really needs those pollinators to help spread the pollen and cross-pollinate the flowers that do require or the plants that require cross-pollination in order to produce fruit. And so using flowers obviously is going to be drawing in honeybees, but also some of our other pollinators such as mason bees um, and different insects that are going to help pollinate. So putting flowers in is got lots of different benefits, obviously. I, I think I just named some of the top three there. But really, I discovered that I love having the flowers in the garden, even the ones that aren't technically a companion plant necessarily, or they're not a medicinal one. I just find them beautiful. And any flower that's blooming is going to work as a pollinator. But I really enjoy them. They are one of my favorite parts of the garden now. And I went decades without really having them. Like we'd have flower beds, kind of more like landscape around the house. But I didn't deal with a ton of flowers, especially annuals that I had to plant every year. It was always more of a perennial landscape kind of girl. But I am adoring the flowers and I've been bringing in more and more creating a cottage garden and more medicinal herbs too with flowers but I want even more so I'm going to be putting in even more flowers now if you're like me or you like man I would love to be putting in like a cottage type garden that also has more medicinal flowers and how to design that and one for enjoyment kind of all the things then I will put in the show notes again and under those resources so you can go and grab that But that is episode number 186, how to design a cottage garden with forgotten medicinal and edible plants. So you're going to want to check that one out as well. And if you did listen to that episode that was earlier this summer, I got hollyhocks in, which is one of the plants. So I'll just kind of give you like, if you didn't, you're going to get like one of the little experts here from that episode. So hollyhocks are a beautiful old fashioned flower. Most people are familiar with hollyhocks as a pretty flower to have in the garden, but you can use hollyhocks like you do marshmallow root. So you can use it to help. Uh, It has the mucilaginous properties to it. And I didn't have hollyhocks. But after hearing that, I'm like, oh, buddy, I am getting me some hollyhocks. Plus, I find them beautiful. I think hollyhocks are gorgeous. So I had hollyhocks this year, you guys, my very first hollyhocks, and they bloomed even in their first year. And I'm so excited. I can't wait for them to come back and to get even more. Now, this first year, I just they were just for their beauty. I didn't want to dig anything up with their roots because I want them to uh, produce and to grow. And I just thought they were gorgeous and I just couldn't cut them while they were blooming because I thought they were so pretty and I only had two. So I'm definitely going to be adding some more in and some different colors and that type of thing. But I did get hollyhocks added to the garden because I talked about that um, in the previous episodes this spring. So I did get them added to the garden and I adore them and I plan on putting even more in this coming year. If you enjoyed today's episode and are looking at growing more of your own food this year, you definitely want to check out the bonuses that you get when you order the Family Garden Plan. You can go to familygardenplan.com 
There you'll see where you can pre-order the book or order the book depending on when you are listening to this, but to get the bonuses, so no matter where you've ordered it, so if you've already ordered the book, thank you so much, but no matter where you order it from, just go to familygardenplan.com and click the claim your bonuses button. You'll see a little form there, pop in your name, your email, and your receipt number, and then I am going to be sending to you as your bonuses, both the crop rotation and companion planting videos to visually walk you through how to do it in your own garden, my seed saving 101 video and ebook package, the organic soil amendment guide. You guys, this guide alone is so in depth and walks you through how to identify when your soil may be low, what your plants are gonna be exhibiting. So if you haven't done a soil test and you're not sure, but you're experiencing some things, you'll be able to go through and be like, yeah, my plants are really doing that or they're looking like that or this is happening. And then you'll also have the ways for organic methods to amend and to fix the soil if the level is too high or too low, because sometimes it's like Goldilocks and Three Bears. If it's too high, you're going to be exhibiting problems. If it's too low, you're going to see issues as well. We really want it right there in the middle. So this bonus guide alone is amazing. And then you're also going to get, if it's before the book has been released, early access to the planting a year's worth of food chart and worksheets that are straight from the book. So you definitely want to go and get your hands on it. So now we're on to our verse of the week. And this week we are in Luke chapter four, verse 49. And this is the amplified translation of the Bible. And he said to them, how is it that you had to look for me? Did you not see and know that it is necessary as a duty for me to be in my father's house and occupied about my father's business? Now, just a bit of quick context. So this verse is when Jesus was a child and they were traveling back and they didn't realize until they had been traveling. Jesus had remained in Jerusalem. So they were at a Jewish feast in Jerusalem and then they were leaving and they thought that he was in the caravan of everybody who was traveling back. And they didn't realize that he wasn't with family and traveling until they had been a number of days out, three days out. And then they had to travel back. So I should say three days total. Excuse me. They had traveled back. It had been three days and they found him at the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening and asking questions and teaching. So that's where he was telling his parents that was his response. So just a little bit of context if you weren't sure where, where that was at from the Bible or what was going on. But why I decided to share this verse with you and why I felt like it was so important and was speaking to me this week is because it's a reminder that shouldn't that be what I am about? Shouldn't that be my focus? Shouldn't that be my duty is to be in my father's house, which God in, in his house and not just physically within the church. I'm speaking metaphorically here but physically be about him in his house, dwelling in him and about his business. Like shouldn't naturally, that would be the first place. If anybody's thinking about me or I'm thinking about what I'm doing, that that would be what would come to mind is that I'm putting the father's business and his things before my own. And I gotta be honest with you, it's not always what the case is. Like not, I would, I want that. It's a desire of mine. But it's not actually what always happens in my life. And maybe it's not in yours either. 
So it's just a good reminder for me as I'm going through and planning out my year and doing all that fun stuff and the holidays that are coming up and just the busyness of life is to not forget that the first thing and the place that I want to be found, where I want to be found, is doing my father's business. So I hope that that would be the same for you. We get to do that together. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, you guys. And I will be back with you next week. And if you have any takeaways from your garden this year, things you're going to be doing differently, I would love to hear about kind of, I feel like we're doing the, the state of the garden. If you want to say the state of the union, we're doing the state of the garden this year. So I would love to hear the state of your garden and how you're going to be doing things differently or improving things. Maybe it's keeping things the same in your garden. Okay. We will talk soon. Thank you.